0: and welcome back to the Palace of Glittering Delights. It's good to have you. As you may have noticed, we are now on a shiny new feed. So episodes of this show will no longer be posted on the Hey Kids Comics feed so that people who don't like this can just ignore it quite happily. Uh, As the introduction said, I'm Andrew Leyland and today... I can talk about whatever I want, because it's Palace of Glittering Delights and not Hey Kids Comics. So just in case you've tuned in by mistake, although I don't understand how you could have done, because, as I mentioned, shiny new feed. It's so freeing to be able to talk about whatever you want. It's, it's I don't know what to say about it, really. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing. It took me this long to actually get around to doing it. So today, given that I can talk about anything that I want, what am I going to talk about? Should we talk about the weather? No. Should we talk about the government? No, both of those topics are very, very boring. One topic that is not boring, however, is the prisoner. The Prisoner was a 1960s ITC television series starring Patrick McGoohan. It may be the quintessential 60s series, or if it isn't, it only comes in second to The Avengers. Produced by Everyman Films in late 1966 and early 1967, there must have been something in the water for the creative types at that time. The Beatles were experimenting with what music could be, and novels, television and film were all trying out new ideas. Granted, only a few people were truly experimenting with music, television and film as art, but it's this material that is remembered today, and that kind of gives us a skewed look at the 1960s. There was just as much trash as there is today, but cream tends to rise to the top over time, which is a bad analogy, really, as shit tends to float as well. Irrespective, The Prisoner has secured its place in pop culture as being not only THE 60s show, but also THE cult show. Which kind of irritates me. Because it wasn't a cult show initially. It was pulling down 10-11 million viewers on initial airing. That's a mainstream success. Anyway, I first saw The Prisoner in 1983 at the tender age of 11. Channel 4, the appropriately named fourth UK TV channel, started in that year and launched with a rerun of many old ITC and ITV shows. I eagerly devoured Callan, starring a pre-equaliser Edward Woodward, Steed and Mrs Peel's adventures in The Avengers and, of course, The Prisoner. The Prisoner is essentially the vision of one man, lead actor Patrick McGoohan. McGowan was, at that point, the highest-paid actor on TV, thanks to his starring role in Danger Man, or Secret Agent, as it was renamed in the USA. McGowan, like Ming the Merciless, however, was bored... The role of John Drake offered no challenges, no worlds to conquer. It was, to be fair, to McGowan a rather cookie-cutter, typical ITC affair. Drake would engage in a number of globe-trotting adventures, normally signified by grainy stock footage and actually filmed at Boreham Wood, inevitably saving the day by being ever the resourceful spy, a staple of late sixties action-adventure fur, from James Bond and Our Man Flint on the big screen to I Spy and The Man from U.N.C.L.E. on the small. McGowan was tired of the role, and at the height of its popularity, and just as the series had started shooting in colour, he quit. McGowan instead had this new idea, which he pitched to Lord Lou Grade, the head of ITC. A seven-episode miniseries revolving around a spy trapped in a prison for spies. Grade likes it, he likes this pitch, but seven episodes isn't enough. Lord Lou needs 26 to sell it to the lucrative American market. McGowan, reluctantly, agrees. With Lord Lou granting a £75,000 an episode budget, big money at that time, and McGowan recruiting suddenly unemployed producer-director David Tomblin, story editor George Markstein and art director Jack Champagne, the series was go. It really is fortunate that the last series these guys worked on, Danger Man, had suddenly come to an abrupt end. Anyway, this is, of course, McGowan's take on events. As with all successful creative endeavours, the prisoner has many fathers. McGowan claims it was all his idea. He pitched it to grade. he outlined the idea, he suggested locations. George Markstein, who left after 13 episodes after constantly butting heads with McGowan over the direction of the show, claims it was his initial idea. Personally, given the way the series pans out, I tend to believe it was all Magooan. If any series can really be said to be that of an auteur, it's this one. Magooan would ultimately not only star, but write, direct, produce, cast and even offer costume suggestions. Production of the show would bring him to the edge of a nervous breakdown. Magoon would also realise as production went on that coming up with a seven-episode miniseries was easy. Spinning the concept out to 26 episodes, well, that was something else. Numerous wacky or off-concept episodes were produced to make up numbers. Living in Harmony was the first Western made for UK TV and is a cowboy take on the series' setup. It was not originally shown in the US in their broadcasts due to its stance on being a contentious objector at the height of the Vietnam War. The Girl Who Was Death was a spoof of other spy shows and, do not forsake me, oh my darling, Burley has McGowan in it due to his conflicting schedule with the film Ice Station Zebra. This is not to say there aren't some brilliant episodes in the run outside of McGowan's Core 7, there are, but when McGowan realised his baby was being diluted, he offered Grade a compromise. 17 episodes, but with a definitive ending. Lord Lou agreed. He probably wished he hadn't. When the final episode erred to a record-viewing audience, it made headline news. The negative reaction to McGowan's controversial non-ending was so intense that he and his family had to flee London for a few days whilst the shitstorm calmed down. McGowan was the series' linchpin. He is the only actor to be in every episode and his influence is all over the finished product. He is a compelling lead, steely-eyed and determined. His delivery style has been described as clipped, which seems to me to mean he spits every single line out with all the venom of a seriously pissed-off Cobra. McGowan's number six is individualistic and angry all the time, spending the entire series, with the exception of the final episode, where he seems to be a detached observer, railing against a system that more and more wants to restrain its populace. For me, it's best summed up in a line of dialogue from the first episode. I will not be pushed, stamped, filed, indexed, briefed, debriefed or numbered. My life is my own. The only other recurring character to appear in more than a handful of episodes is Angelo Muscat as the butler, a diminutive but constant presence working in the employ of the village as the attendant to number one's needs. One of the more outlandish theories concerning the series is that he was number one all along. So what was it about this show? Why has it been long remembered? And has any show in the history of television ever asked so many questions about man, life and society, only to steadfastly refuse to answer any of them? My doing this episode came about via two routes. One, when I started Palace, it was a way for me to free myself from the constraints of my other show and talk about any and all genre entertainment that interests me. And, The Prisoner being a long-time favourite, it seemed like a natural for coverage. However, what really got the wheels turning was listener Ron Sadowski, who reminded me of The Prisoner's seven-episode plan, and I thought it may be fun to re-watch the show, but only those seven episodes. I'd never done that. Whenever I dug the show out, I rewatched them all. The seven core episodes, which McGowan says really count, are, in his order, Arrival, Free For All, Dance of the Dead, Checkmate, The Chimes of Big Ben, Once Upon a Time, and Fallout. The website Culture Court lays out the entire concept of the show like this and I've stolen it because it's magnificent and I couldn't have done it any better. I urge you to check out their article on the series. It's phenomenally well written. Dark clouds fill the sky. Lightning flashes. Thunder rumbles. There's the sound of a jet. A long shot of a runway. Then, as the harpsichord based theme music pulses, a Lotus 7, registration KAR120C, flashes towards us down a freeway, revealing a grim faced man. Cut to London streets. Cut to an underground parking lot. The man strides darkly down a corridor, dramatically throws open double doors, pounds on a balding bureaucrat's desk, played by none other than series story editor George Markstein, then throws down a letter of resignation and stomps out. A machine puts X's all over his photograph and another machine drops his ID card into a filing cabinet marked, Resigned. The man returns home unaware of a following car. He grabs his passport, starts packing some bags and is then overcome by some kind of gas pumped through his mail slot. When he awakes, he staggers uncertainly to the window and opens the blinds. He looks below to the central square of the village. A fantastic collection of eccentric buildings, alleyways and parks on a verdant hillside beside a sandy Crescent Bay. His name, never aptly spoken during the series, is now number six, and the unknown captors, led by number two, demand to know why he's resigned. He vows never to tell, and the sequence ends with him running wildly on a moonlit beach. He thrusts his fist into the air and gives the now famous battle cry, I am not a number, I am a free man! being a truly spectacular and almost cinematic opening, it's one of the longest in TV history, clocking in at nearly three minutes in length. It does change every week, with a shot of this week's number two inserted, and they often re-record the dialogue for their part of the speech, although not in every episode. Some actors neglected to film the overdubbed dialogue, and in that case, a generic number two is inserted. The first episode of the series, Arrival, was written by George Markstein and David Tomblin, directed by Don Chaffey. The opening episode is one of only three that doesn't open with the standard opening sequence as detailed above, eliminating the spoken word ending which makes sense as this is the first episode. In this segment, we go straight from our lead looking out of his window and then investigating where he has found himself, and more importantly, how he can get out. It's a magnificently stylish and fast-paced episode that is essentially a travelogue. The plot, such as it is, takes second place to establishing the tone of the show and the character Magoon is playing, a man who is never named. He is given the number six by the head of this strange and funky village, number two. The episode essentially sets up Six's honorary nature and staunch nonconformist and attitude. He finds himself constantly questioning the way things are. The key to this first episode, Heck, the series general, is a scene in Six's apartment when he asks his maid, Have you ever wondered who's in charge? Never asked. On the face of it, the village is a nice place. People seem to want for nothing, they don't seem to have to work, and it seems to be a retirement home just for people who know too much. Underneath, however, there is a sinister feeling to the place. Inhabitants are constantly watched by CCTV. Any transgression is punished by a rover, a giant beach ball that smothers you into unconsciousness, and there are numerous slogans and phrases dotted about, such as a still tongue makes a happy life and questions are a burden to others, answers a prison to oneself. The episode does ask some big questions regarding society and our place in it. That we are all prisoners, you and I, of ourselves, of society, of our leaders. But it's spiced up with science fiction. CCTV was years away from being a reality when this episode was made. And a central enigma. Who is number one? Who is actually in charge? It seems like the village is run by number two, but who does he answer to? People are controlled by the media, which cannot be turned off. And problem people are adjusted to conform. But why? Where is Six? Who controls the place? What is its purpose? Also worth noting, the figurehead in charge, number two changes in this episode and in every subsequent episode. The show pointing out that our leaders are irrelevant and controlled by others, perhaps? These questions will not be answered. And that's probably one of the strengths of the show. It leaves it to you to work out what it all means, if, indeed, it means anything at all. The prisoner is interesting in asking these questions, but why it's still remembered is because it refuses to answer them. This first show makes no attempt to answer the many questions contained within, and it's not expected to. It's a first episode, after all, but even the show itself has a central dichotomy. The Prisoner is linked through its themes and ideas with the socially progressive and liberally permissive 1960s The Summer of Love was just around the corner when this episode was first screened, yet Magoo and Sympathies did not lie with the advocates of sex and drugs and rock and roll. This central irony drives the series and its star. Arrival is well worth watching as Six realises that no one can be trusted in this village with every single person he reaches out to betraying him. Granted, Six's idea of reaching out is to just not be an utter bastard to people, rather just being a standard bastard. The episode closes as all but one did, with Six's face zooming towards the viewer before being caged by the slamming shut of iron bars. The theme by Ron Grainer is one of the best TV themes in history, and the incidental score is whimsical and strange, mixing in children's fairy tales to great effect. The village was filmed at Port Merion in North Wales, and there is probably more location photography in this episode than any other. Port Merion is open to visitors, and we've been quite a few times. As you might expect, it's a lot smaller than it appears on TV, with the camera angles and lenses making it look a lot bigger than it actually is. As mentioned, this episode also introduces one of the more interesting aspects of the series, that Six will not be up against the same man every week. Whilst the character of number two is in every episode, he's a different actor in every episode, with a few exceptions, and this concept is introduced here with Guy Dolman's number two giving way to George Baker halfway through. Arrival also gives us our first look at Rover, a giant round ball that patrols the village, preventing people from escaping. If it looks like a weather balloon... It's because it's a weather balloon, the original prop failing to function correctly. Still, the effects of Rover smothering men is chilling, completely offsetting its comical appearance. Arrival is an excellent piece of television, both of its time and simultaneously ahead of it. It's a cracking opening to the series. Hell, it's a cracking opening to any series. The second episode on Maguire's Core 7 is Free For All. Written by McGowan under the pen name Paddy Fitz, the director was originally Don Chafee, who completed a number of days on the project. However, McGowan, unhappy with what he was seeing, and in the first example of the actor taking over almost complete control of the series, took charge. McGowan would be the only credited director on Free For All. Number Six is sceptical when Number Two offers him the chance to run for the office of Number Two in the democratic elections, but the lure of taking office and being introduced to Number One is too much for him to resist. It isn't long before Six realises that, like everything in the village, the few control the many. Starting out with McGowan at his angriest, this episode mixes pop art production values with a serious message, democracy and the elected government, and it throws it all together to create one of the most compelling episodes in the series. The opening scenes with number two, here played by Eric Portman, crackle with intensity, and he and Six trade barbs and insults. Six as ever being the angry iconoclast. Six is lured into the elections despite knowing it must be a con. What follows is a rather sour commentary on the UK electoral system. Six takes an interview with a local paper who ignores everything Six says and makes up their own answers to be published. The public are fickle in their choices, not really knowing all the issues, and in many ways not curring. And Six is manipulated throughout to give that same general public the belief that the system is working. There are also scenes depicting the debates between the candidates that satirise politicians' inability to answer a direct question. Six, clouding his answers in rhetoric he knows will be popular but is ultimately meaningless. The sting in the tail comes when Six actually wins the election, and the kicker is when his mad maid, who has been following them throughout the episode and apparently speaks no English, is secretly revealed to be number two, and this has all been another ruse to break him. This episode does indeed have much to recommend it. The satire is biting, it's well shot and full of quick cut, and even a subliminal message, VOTE, at one point appears, flashing across the screen. The action is often frenetic and well choreographed. However, it's also a little baggy in places. Some scenes go on a little bit too long, having already made their point, and a little trimming wouldn't have gone amiss. Ultimately, though, this satirical look at the electoral process, democracy and how the media presents sane is as prescient now as when it was broadcast in 1967. It also represents a truly crushing defeat for six at a time when TV audiences weren't used to seeing their heroes lose. Even the title of the episode has a double meaning. Free for all can mean that voting is free for all, but free for all can also mean a fight that is out of control and usually without rules. One of the core themes of The Prisoner was the theme of identity. It seems odd, therefore, that Six's true ID was never revealed. The common theory was that McGowan was playing John Drake, his character from Danger Man, and Free For All adds credence to that theory, as all the promotional imagery used in Six's election campaign are publicity stills of McGowan from Danger Man. However, just as many saw it as McGowan himself resigning from his old job. Dance of the Dead is third on Magoon's list of Core 7, and it's an odd choice, as I think there are much better episodes in the show's run. It was written by Anthony Skeen, who admits he was given no series bible or writer's guide to follow, but in return was offered a free hand in what he wrote. Production of the episode was plagued by problems, such as the actor originally cast for the role of number two, Trevor Howard, dropping out at the last minute to be replaced by Murray Morris. McGowan ordered the episode shelved after the first cut of the show proved unsatisfactory to him. There also seemed to be an insufficient coverage of key moments filmed, and the ending lacked clarity. A new editor, John Smith, took over and recut the show in an effort to make it work. Whether he succeeded or not is open to debate. Six is invited to the village carnival by the newest incumbent in the role of number two. Six would rather escape, but it's another futile attempt that leaves him unconscious on the beach thanks to Rover. He awakens to find a body. Perusing the man's personal effects, Six finds a transistor radio and promptly puts a note and a picture in the man's wallet, puts him in a rubber ring and sets him back out to sea. His actions are witnessed by Dutton, an old colleague who has been worked over by number two and has been broken. Six uses the frivolity of the carnival to snoop around, thanks to the cunning designs of a lab coat and specks, and in the morgue comes across the body he flung into the sea. Two tells him the face will be changed, the outside world will believe Six dead. He is then taken to a kangaroo court where he is placed on trial for being in possession of the transistor radio, a charge for which he is, of course, found guilty. Six calls Dutton to be a witness. Sadly, Dutton is now lobotomized, and Six flees with the crowd baying for his blood. He ducks into a room with a teletype that relays messages from number one that works even with its innards ripped out. Two tells him that one day even he will be broken. Number two being a woman was postulated in free-for-all, but this is the first time number two is a female from the outset, and it seems her idea to break six using feminine wiles instead of the more obviously doomed-to-fail approaches of the male number twos is initially going to succeed, but this episode takes an awfully long time to get going. While Six being outfoxed by the women is fun, this episode could have opened at the 16-minute mark and nothing of import would really have been lost. It's another 15 minutes before the main plot kicks in as Six attends the carnival, and then it takes another 15 minutes before the story takes another step forward. The actual kangaroo trial is handled very well, with the village being like the French Revolution, in having only three judges and no jury, and McGowan is excellent in pointing out the hypocrisy of the system. Has anyone ever seen these rules? Don't you ask how I plea? Etc. But the episode has a very slight plot and the ending is completely crazy, even for this show, with Six fleeing and the crowd following. And then they just seem to forget about it. The idea that number one is contacted from this room is intriguing but never followed up on. It's a shaggy dog tale of an episode. There are much better shows in the series than this one and I'd be interested in learning why Maguire favoured this mess over episodes like A, B and C, Many Happy Returns or Hammer into Anvil, one of the few episodes in which Six scores a resounding victory. One of the reasons the show was shelved was due to its running short, and it's one of the few episodes that feels every minute of its 49-minute runtime. Checkmate, by contrast, is one of the more memorable episodes and is Magoon's fourth choice. Written by Gerald Kelsey and directed by Don Chafee, Checkmate depicts the figurative and literal chess game. Six is playing when the new number two, here played by Flash Gordon's Peter Wingard, allows the inhabitants of the village to play a game of chess with human players. One such player, a rook, disobeys orders and moves into a position whereby he checks the queen and is taken away for aversion therapy. Six believes he may still be a willing escapee, and along with Number 14, whom he met on the chessboard, they start to raise their plans for a daring seaboard escape. See, Number 14 believes she can tell the warders from the prisoners by their demeanour, and after arranging a small band who are believed to be individuals like Six, they make their break for it. But Six finds his own arrogance in recruiting these individuals turned against him when they believe Six himself not to be a prisoner, but a warder. Highlighted by lots of lovely location footage in and around Port Merion, although Wingard never leaves the soundstage, this tale of brainwashing, psycho-evaluations and pawns is one of the best episodes of the series. Playing out like a fantasy version of The Great Escape, Six goes about recruiting his team with zeal, carefully eluding the CCTV cameras in the village and working out an elaborate plan for escape. Number 2 has countered this with a small brainwashing of number 14, making her infatuated with number 6, and with her constantly following him around like a lovesick 14-year-old, 6 finds it difficult to implement his plan. The subterfuge is well played, as 6 must avoid detection and fourteen's advances, but it's the ending that makes this so memorable. Fourteen explains to Six that her theory of who the prisoners are and who the warders are works off the theory that the warder will be authoritarian and arrogant, whilst the prisoners will be more subservient. Well, Six has been arrogant and authoritarian since the beginning, another of the little ironies the show loves so much, so it's quite easy to believe that Six's merry band end up believing that he is in fact a warder and turn him in, ruining not only their chances for escape, but also their reputations. When they found out Six is actually a prisoner, the smug look on number two's face is a delight. Like so many of the best prisoner episodes, the script works on multiple levels. The human chess game and its implication that man is but a pawn in a game we have no control over is a little bit on the nose. But the other themes central to the prisoner of conformity, trust and misuse of authority from elected officials are tried and true. They will also all be explored in later episodes. This, though, is the first and largely the best of them, and it may explain McGoohan's placing of it in his course 7. Imagery was very important to the prisoner, and this episode is replete with it, from the human chess pieces to the colourful costumes, and it's doubtful this series could have been made at any other time than the 1960s, the whole ethos of that time period being central to the look and feel of the show. It's interesting to know that McGurn himself didn't side with the liberal drug use and turn-on-tune-in-drop-out culture at all, being described by co-stars as quite puritanical, so the idea that he should create a show so synonymous with those values is another interesting irony. Despite the excellence of the episode, though, it does reveal that the concept of the show was quite limited and that McGowan was correct in his belief that a mini series was the way to go. The series is really about man and the war he fights with himself every day, whether he acknowledges it or not. And having Six being almost broken every week only to turn the tables is something a series can only pull off two or three times before it starts getting tired. Likewise, although Six doesn't actually escape in this episode, never getting further than the surrounding ocean, there are many other episodes where he does escape only for it all to be an elaborate ruse. Again, despite the ingenuity of the writers, this was only an idea that could be pulled off two or three times before the feeling of being the scene that sets in. Checkmate works because essentially Six's attitude is what betrays him. He is betrayed here not by the people he trusts, but by himself. This is another theme that the series will return to. Speaking of escaping the chimes of Big Ben is next on McGowan's core episode list. It's telling, I think, that all of McGowan's choices are episodes that were filmed early on in the series' production schedule before the more outlandish, arguably padded episodes like Living in Harmony and The Girl Who Was Deaf. Written by Vincent Tilsley and directed for the last time by John Chafer, who, following the debacle with Free For All and other fallings out with McGowan, quit the show. McGowan, the only actor to portray number two more than twice, makes his first appearance in the series, in an episode in which a new lodger in the village, a beautiful young Estonian woman who says her name is Nadia, and foregoing her number, 14, Fourteen is as defiant as Six, which irks two, and he quickly takes her for interrogation. Six, incensed, says that he will tell them nothing, but he will, however, cooperate if they leave her alone. And to this end, Six takes a greater interest in village life, taking part in an abstract art exhibition, with a piece he calls Escape. However, the abstract pieces put together form a boat, and with Nadia's knowledge, she and Six make a break for it, making it all the way back to London. But if that's the case, why are the chimes of Big Ben toiling at the wrong time? Chafee opens this episode with no less than five zooms, something that really unnerves the audience and jars them into paying attention. Most IT series, hell, most series, open with leisurely establishing shots, not The Prisoner. The show intends to wake you up from the get-go and succeeds, being one of the first television shows to employ what would later be called MTV-style quick cuts and edits. McCurn's number two admires Six from the get-go, pointing out that Six makes even the act of putting on his dressing gown a defiant move. Six has a far more genial, albeit still adversarial, relationship with this number two, and McKern and McGowan bounce off each other marvellously. Nadia and Six's relationship even turns the tables around, with Six being the veteran in the village to Nardia's wide-eyed newbie, and it's interesting to see Six in this position. The dialogue in this episode is some of the best, be it the verbal sparring with number two or six's caustic attitude to the other villagers, and his inflexible attitude towards his captor is never more vibrant. This is also one of three episodes that gives the potential location for the village, although not much stock can be placed in this as the location is different each time. Despite being an excellent episode in its own right, it's more an excellent episode of a standard IT series of this time. There's very little of the allegorical content or abstract weirdness of other episodes of the series present here. There's even very little Marion location footage, with neither Nadia Gray, the actress portraying Nadia, nor Leo McKern ever going to the location. What this is, though, is a solid, exciting and well-played show that basically sets out one of the main plots of the series, Six's quest for escape. His sentiment that he plans to leave, come back and blow this place off the map is a sentiment followed up on in many other episodes, most notably the almost silent Many Happy Returns, but this was the first time the audience had been led to believe Six had achieved his goal, but also showed the audience how far up the chain of command the village actually went. This episode was originally screened second, where it complements the first episode arrival and is less obtuse in its presentation than other segments, but it feels wrong shown that early in the series. This really does work better a few shows later. McGowan portrays Six at his most ineffably cool in this episode, from his defiant nature and smart-ass comebacks to his Fonzie-like finger snap at the end that opens his automatic door. This is a man not for breaking. Chimes also benefits from McGowan's brilliant performance as number two. None of the other actors really managed to blend the ruthlessness and amiability of McKern's two, and this, plus McGowan's liking of the man, probably secured his return visits. This episode, like Arrival, exists in a pre-release cut with different opening credits, theme and extended scenes. Both are available on my network DVD set, but I have to confess I prefer the tighter pacing of the erred versions. Both are worth watching if, like me, you are an aficionado of different versions of things, but neither is required viewing. Despite being the sixth episode filmed, Once Upon a Time Earth is the 16th of 17 shows, and its position in the order was always in flux whilst in production. Written by Patrick McGowan in a 36-hour writing session, the original script, Degree Absolute, was thought to be either the final episode of initial 13 shows, should the show go to a second year, or, in McGowan's case, as the first part of a two-part series finale. As with all things prisoner, McGuin ultimately got his own way, and despite the filming order, this episode was shelved to be aired at a much later date. One of the reasons for its early filming was to include Leo McCurn again as number two. Whilst McCurn had found the role agony to do, McCowan had been impressed with his performance, and when conceiving this cheap two-header, McCurn was McGowan's first choice for a returning role. The episode is a cheap stage play, two actors, one set. When number six is brainwashed in one final desperate attempt to break him, six fights back his indomitable will hard to crush. Six turns the tables on number two in a battle to the death and with two crushed totally and utterly, six is taken finally to see number one. Once Upon a Time draws heavily on McGowan's own life. He was an amateur boxer and a good one and did indeed work at a bank both attributed to number six in this script. McGowan felt a certain autobiographical nature to the episode was inevitable given how much of himself was in the show already and it was no surprise when it was announced he was to direct as well nursery rhymes and children's songs pivotal in earlier episodes are revisited here with pop goes the weasel recurring and the addition of the grand old duke of york twinkle twinkle little star jack and jill and humpty dumpty all making an appearance in the show's score the intensity of the script also bled over into real life, with McKern suffering a bit of a breakdown due to McGowan's relentless perfectionist nature. From the beginning, it's clear Number Two has been brought back against his will, even being treated as an inmate himself with Rover standing guard in Number Two's chair, one of the funniest images of the show. Number Two seems to take Six's defiance as a personal affront, especially when Six recognises his voice. Two calls for Six to be handled his way, and it's from this point on the episode becomes a psychological battle of wills between Two and Six that basically allows two actors to beat on each other relentlessly for the entertainment of us, the viewing public. Its theatricality in both staging and writing is its big strength, with the very nature of the piece lending itself to the intense battle raging on screen. Script editor George Markstein was not a fan of this script, calling it gibberish, and even other production personnel couldn't make head nor tails of it. Personally, I think this is one of the easier prisoner scripts to understand. Number two quotes Shakespeare at the beginning of the episode... ...because all bad guys quote Shakespeare... ...starting with all the world is a stage... ...in this case a literal stage for his final battle with Six. But the rest of the quote has old Willie the Shake state... ...that there are seven ages of man... ...and my reading of this episode is that number two's plan... ...was to revert Six to the beginning of these ages... ...and then take him through them in an attempt to break him... How this works exactly, I'm not terribly clear on, but the premise is pretty straightforward. The key scene for me is when number two tries to get six to count down from ten and six's relentlessly individualistic nature refuses to say the number six, causing two to scream at him, six, 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 over and over again. Six managing to turn the tables on two is expertly done and the final scenes of the controller of the village and the diminutive butler recognising six as the new boss take him to see number one. It's probably one of the better episodes of The Prisoner, showing the final battle between number two and number six, and it's an effective confrontation. As with all things Prisoner, it doesn't take the form of a large spectacular fight scene in an exotic location with explosions and a bombastic score. Rather, it deals with childhood, nursery rhymes, and two actors being allowed to command the screen. Personally, I didn't find this episode confusing per se, although number two just dropping dead after being told to die seems a little spurious. Nevertheless, this is a gripping and audacious hour of television and left the audience gasping for the conclusion. If they thought this was weird, the best or worst was yet to come. Fallout, the final episode of the show, is very difficult to synopsize, but, you know, we'll give it a go. Beginning with an extended flashback to Once Upon a Time, we then get a different opening credit sequence and different arrangement of the theme. An aerial shot of the village accompanies, for the first and only time in the series, a filming location credit for Port Marion. Six is then taken to an underground lure where he is bequeathed the gift of being himself and given back the clothes he was wearing when he arrived in the village. The Beatles All You Need Is Love plays as the butler and the supervisor take him to a group of masked, hooded jurors and a judge is ruling on the question of revolt. Number six survived the test and as a man who has vindicated the right of the individual he has given back his name, sir, and takes the chair of honour. Number two, a returning Leo McCurd, is resurrected thanks to a hairdryer and some shaving foam, and is then stood before the ruling council, along with number 48, supposedly representing youthful rebellion, who sings Dem Bones, and this causes utter chaos. Number 48, played by Alexis Kenner, is brought low as the status quo must be maintained. Number 48 is taken away and 2 takes the stage. He also has an incomprehensible speech that basically culminates with him saying, you couldn't even let me rest in peace. Number 2 takes off his number and he's marched away like number 48. Both men are tied up and dispatched into the earth. Sir is given the keys to the kingdom and offered the opportunity to lead or leave. When he tries to speak, however, he is drowned out. He's finally taken to number 1, past 2 and 48, who are in launch tubes. Number 1 is sitting in a room full of globes, wearing a mask like all the others, half black, half white. 6 rips it off to reveal a monkey's face. He rips that mask off to reveal his own face. Number 6 and the butler then trigger a launch sequence, and the jurors run to evacuate, as number 6 engages in a pointless gun battle with the military police alongside number 48 and number 2, as All You Need Is Love plays over the action. The village occupants abandon ship as 6, two, forty-eight and the butler all leave in the cage from once upon a time. That is inexplicably now on the back of a truck and we see the rocket launch presumably destroying the village. The truck, equally inexplicably, ends up on the A20 to London. They drop number 48 off in the country and then number 2 off in London. Number 6 and the butler return to number 6's house, seen every week in the opening credits, where the butler enters and the door opens with the same noise as his apartment in the village. As number 6 gets in his Lotus, the hearse, seen in the opening credits every week, and the vehicle that took him away, is seen to drive past. As 6 drives away, we see the opening footage of every episode. The cycle begins again. Fallout is incomprehensible bobbins. It's a work of staggering ineptitude masquerading as profundity. It works neither narratively nor dramatically. It makes little sense and the viewer is left feeling exhausted, bewildered and let down. It's also one of the most compelling hours of television ever made. Filmed last and some considerable time after Once Upon a Time, Maguire has claimed many times that Fallout was the ending he always envisioned for the series. Which I can only assume Magoon always meant the series to make no sense whatsoever. The underground lure full of army-type personnel and masked hooded figures is presumably a nod to Ken Adams' lures designed for the Bond films and then takes a step into surrealism that shouldn't work at all and yet uniquely does. Youth is shown as something that is designed to rebel and that's fine but ultimately it must kowtow to the way of things. Youthful rebellion then starts to affect the jurors and even the judge which represents what? Never to lose touch with your youth? Six takes on the role of number one, which kind of implies he's won, but what has he won by becoming part of that which he tried to destroy? Six is also a passive observer in most of these events, signifying that we are all passive observers in our own lives, possibly. Who knows? Does number two's line, you won't even let me rest in peace, represent that even in death we are hounded? Number one being a monkey, and then being number six himself, is Magoon making a monkey out of us, the audience, and then saying that number one is, and always has been, number six. The prisoner is us, and we are prisoners of ourselves... There's a lot of gubbins here about youth and its need to rebel against whatever. And then it turns around and condemns older people like number two, who also rebel and question authority. Yet number six is held up as a man who has survived intact and secure in his individuality. And in recognition of that, he is installed as leader. Six tries to speak, but learns the voice of the individual means nothing and he's not listened to. The ending, as I tried to describe is as you may have guessed, indescribable. Magoon, who wrote, directed and starred, received no credit other than Prisoner. Prisoner of what? His own creation? His past career? Again, who knows? Number two returns to his job and seems happy. So who are we to question people who like the status quo? Ultimately, I gave up trying to analyse this and just sat back, slack-jawed. In essence, Magoon does deliver. Number six does escape after finding out who his captors were... That it makes no sense is largely irrelevant and is, I think, why the series has captured the hearts and minds of people for over 50 years. If it had a standard ending, I don't think it would be anywhere near as memorable. But is that it? Is that why The Prisoner has endured? Why it's remembered nearly 50 years after its creation? Is it a work of staggering genius or is it complete and utter toss? Where was the village? Why did he resign? What did it all mean? Well, I'll be honest, some of these questions don't matter. Where the village was located, why he resigned, or even if he was John Drake from McGowan's previous series Danger Man are irrelevant and unimportant. The show is a textbook example of allegorical, so the village could be anywhere or nowhere, off the coast of the Baltic or down the road off the M1. Likewise, why he resigned is also not the point. He resigned for whatever reason you want to have. Nor was he ever John Drake, if only for legal reasons. So the other questions are more pertinent and important, at least to me. Why has the prisoner endured is quite an easy one to answer. Any work of art that is staggeringly different or offbeat will attract an audience, and the prisoner is nothing if not different and offbeat. This was a series created to have mass appeal that erred in a prime time slot and yet delivered a show that not only challenged the viewer into questioning what it was they were watching, but left questions that lingered longer after the watching had finished. It lingered long in the memory of all who saw it, whether that was on first run or one of the countless reruns in the years since. Even if people only recall the weirdness of it all, that constitutes why it's remembered. Is it a work of staggering genius or utter toss is in the eye of the beholder. Again, I think any populist work of art that causes people to think can't be a bad thing. But I think the appeal of the prisoner lies in the fact that it's both staggering genius and utter toss. The sheer number of unanswered or obliquely answered questions is a testament to why it's a work of genius. It spells nothing out and leaves it all up to the viewer to apply meaning and relevance. Conversely, the fact that the ending is incredibly frustrating, nonsensical and ridiculous means that the work is utter toss. The ending means whatever you want it to mean. A quick Google of the show will reveal any number of different websites all pretentiously devoted to uncovering the hidden meanings of the show and every single one of them is wrong. McGuan, through accident or design, created a piece of work that can be read 17 different ways until Sunday or it can be looked at and the viewer get nothing out of it at all. For me, The Prisoner is the story of a man's single-minded quest to retain his individuality in the face of increased technological progress designed to strip away man's privacy and identity, an incredibly prescient and potent theme that still resonates today. We are all numbers in our 21st century world. Try living a day-to-day existence without a bank account, phone number or national insurance card and see how far you get. That McGowan successfully predicted CCTV and the rise of homogenous bureaucracy is incredible. That he did it while sticking two fingers up at his audience is remarkable. The final question, therefore, is what does it all mean I don't think Magooan knew, but as with all things Prisoner, the final word must go to its star, producer, writer, director, tea boy and madman, Patrick Magooan, in this exchange from the chimes of Big Ben. At the Arts and Crafts Fair, the Art Judge of number six's abstract piece says, We're not quite sure what it means. Number six replies, It means what it is. I very much hope you enjoyed listening to that. I know that I did. If you would like to get in touch with the show, I am still using HeyKidsComics at VirginMedia.com as my primary email address, but I can be friended on Facebook using HeyKids as the first name and Comics as the surname. Emails this week were rather thin on the ground for my Top 10 Treks episode, which saddens me, because I was quite proud of that episode, but you know, you can never predict what it is that your audience will respond to if you're fortunate enough to have an audience. The only email was from Chris Franklin that read, Commander Leyland, the best of the best of Trek. I thoroughly enjoyed the much-anticipated best of Trek episode of Palace. I could listen to people talk about classic Trek all day, especially someone whose opinion I value, like yourself. Thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate that. I won't argue with you on the quality of any of the episodes you picked, not only because I enjoy every one of them, for many of the same reasons you cited, but also because these are your favourite Trek episodes, and that point is not open to debate. Given your appearance on Star Trek Monthly Monday's A Mock Time episode, I knew it would be your number one, and it would definitely inhabit my top five for sure. The Ultimate Computer seems to often be somewhat overlooked, but I really enjoy William Marshall's scene-stealing performance as he out-chews Shatner. He went on to make a surprisingly compelling lead character in *Blacula* and Scream *Blacula*, Scream, despite the black exploitation nature of those films. I do wonder why the character is so honoured in Next Gen's time frame, since this guy inadvertently slaughtered several starships full of people. Yeah, I always wondered why the Daystrom Institute. I mean, it's not like Kirk could have even spun that one to make him out to have died or been a hero, like he did with Gary Mitchell. Uh, he, he cracks up in front of many, many people. The M5 unit, as you say, kills and destroys numerous people and starships. There's no way even Kirk could have spun that into being Dane Well, he was actually a hero. Unless Starfleet kept it under wraps and only a select few knew the full story and that was, you know, classified top secret or something, I don't know. Sure, Eve continues, Chris is a fun romp with some sinister asides. I'd love to have seen the real Finnegan and Kirk interact at some point during the series or even the films. I'm pretty sure Finnegan came back in uh, the comics or the novels. I mean, speaking of the novels... I've been reading a lot of Star Wars novels recently because I'm on a a bit of a Star Wars kick but I was also looking at my Star Trek novels on my bookshelf and thinking I've not read a a good Star Trek novel in a long time. And so just browsing in the bookstore there are still bookstores, kids and you can still browse in them. Um, I was looking at the Trek novels and there was a couple that, that looked interesting but every single one of them was either a sequel to an episode or part of a six book series. And you don't want to sound like a grumpy old man, but what happened to when I was reading Trek novels? You could pick pretty much any one of them, and it was a standalone read. And occasionally, they'd bring back characters from the show, even if it was only Kevin Riley. But they were they were standalones, and now it seems like they're all just sequels to old episodes. What happened to boldly going where none have gone before? Anyway, Chris continues. Spectre of the Gun is most definitely one of my favourite treks, partially due to my love of westerns and interest in the tales of Wyatt Earp at Tombstone. The climactic scene where the Earps open fire at Kirk and crew and the bullets harmlessly go through them into the wooden fence behind them is pure cinematic brilliance. I think it and the Tholian Web are the best episodes of Season 3, and of course I'm rather fond of all our yesterdays as per our Supermates episode. I could go point by point and whack your enterprise on each episode you name, but I'll spur you my ramblings. Suffice to say, we're pretty much in agreement. I will admit City on Ninja Forever is my favourite Trek episode. I will also qualify that by saying it was my favourite before I knew it was deemed the best by most fans. It was also my father's favourite, and since he got me into Trek, that probably had something to do with it. I agree Trouble with Tribbles is vastly overrated and was flummoxed when it was voted number one in that 25th anniversary poll all those years ago, and erred in that spot leading to the 25th anniversary TV special. Kirk is most definitely out of character in the episode, and his horrible attitude aggravates every situation. Koloth is indeed way too effeminate to be a convincing Klingon, although our mutual favourite Michael Pataki somewhat makes up for it as his second-in-command. Yeah, Michael Pataki is glorious in Tribbles. He's probably the best one, in it. Another fantastic episode. Looking forward to whatever you decide to talk about next time, Chris. Well, thank you very much, Christopher. That was much appreciated. And yes, I read that in hard copy. Because I is old school. Thank you very much for joining me for this episode. As I pointed out, this show now has its own feed. Please subscribe. Leave us reviews on iTunes. Apparently all the kids do that. And I will be back next time with, tentatively, what's planned next is my defence of Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. There should be some good feedback on that one. Thank you for joining me. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.